Welcome to the Mirror Media Podcast with Luca Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mirror Media Podcast. Uh, we have an uh, amazing guest today, uh, Professor Stephen Phillips, um, who is a professor, was, is kind of in between at the University of Texas at Austin, I believe. Um, and he is the author of a couple books here that I've read. I, there's a few more. So one is Yoga, Karma, and Rebirth, which is a fantastic work on basically the history and the flow of the ideas of yoga, karma, and rebirth, as the title says. And the other one is the Epistemology of Perception, which is a text um, by, I believe, a, a 12th, 13th century uh, philosopher by name in Gangesha called Tathachutamani. Um, and uh, Professor Phillips, please uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking your time and um, your semi-retirement to have a conversation with us. Okay, namaskara. Namaskara. So, uh, Professor, um, what, what's your background? How did you get really involved into getting into uh, studying Sanskrit and the Hindu tradition? Um, and, and what kind of drew you into it? Because one of the feelings I also got from your book on yoga was that you're actually probably an avid yogi, too. So can you explain <laughs> that process? <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, I have, yeah, I, I just noticed. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, in the process of moving into retirement. And so I don't have my whole library, but uh, I do have this book that uh, I... Um, yeah, I, I, I was lucky. I was a, I was a smart uh, teenager who got a, uh, a uh, scholarship to a prep school. My, I'm not from a wealthy family, and uh, I did very well at the prep school and got a very good scholarship to Harvard College, uh, and that was in 1968 uh, at the time of the Vietnam War and I don't know, emergence of the counterculture. Sure. Uh, I, uh, uh, I don't know um, the uh, racism in particular of uh, the U.S. and I was quite anti-war. I gave an anti-war speech at my, and as, as part of my graduation ceremonies, I'm very proud of in 1958, uh, and uh, quite shocking. And it was in a Chattanooga, Tennessee. Is that where you're from? No, but uh, that's where the high school was. Okay. And and um, so then uh, so then I got a chance. There's a program at Harvard called uh, Volunteers for Africa it was a little bit like the Peace Corps. So I, I dropped out after my sophomore year. I was a philosophy major. Mm -hmm. Wasn't doing particularly well because I don't know. It was a time we actually, I had a course with a great philosopher, Hillary Putnam. Oh yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have my, have had my career had Harvard not called off classes in the spring of, I think it was 1970 because Nixon, bomb Cambodia because I had I think a D in philosophy of science under Putnam and he, he gave us all A's <laughs> and called off course and told us to march on Washington. In any case the next year I went to Africa and went to Kenya and uh, while I was in Kenya I, 
there was some lady, I had just started reading various stuff, and there was a book called The Adventure of Consciousness about uh, a yogi named Sri Aurobindo. And uh, I uh, stole that book and uh, borrowed some money from a tourist. You stole it from where? From, from the lady who loaned it to me. I was <laughs> some old uh, uh, British colonialist who, uh, you know, let, uh, I don't know, Western hitchhikers stay at her house and so on. I was, stay, I was working. I was really bad. I quit. And, and, uh, but, and I took that book and I just started traveling, hitchhiking up through the desert of Kenya and Ethiopia. And I went to a kibbutz and eventually got to a kibbutz in Israel where I ordered more books from uh, the Shribindo Ashram and then went on to India on a student ID card. I, I traveled from Ferozapur to what was called Madras, Chennai, uh, in, this is 1971, early, uh, for 51 rupees. <laughs> and, uh, and then I went to the uh, Shribindo Ashram. Uh, they, they sent most of the young hippies out to Oroville, right? Yeah. But for some reason, there was a guy named Madhav Pandit. I was only 20 years old, who, I don't know, he put me in uh, with some ashramites. Right. And, uh, you know, I cleaned up and, uh, and I don't know, started reading. I still have. And then I, I worked on, there's this temple up in, in the, uh, when they started this town called Oroville. Mm -hmm. I've been there, and, yeah. Uh, and so I still have, I read, right, most people were like digging the hole for this temple, the Matra Mandir. Uh -huh. This book right here is The Synthesis of Yoga by Sri Aurobindo. That it's, all got, it's got all that clay Orville soil on it from <laughs> The red soil. Yeah. Where, yeah, I read that. And then uh, I, I started making friends, uh, Upendra Sharma in particular, some people who are going to the Shribindo Ashram School, International Center for Education. And I said, God, I'd like to go to this school. And so they said, well, just write a letter to the mother. I did. She accepted me. Wow. And so, and so I went to school. Then, So I went back to the U.S. and got some money, went to Harvard for one semester, got some money, and then lived in... Uh, went to school in the International Center for Education where they, you know, I, that's where I started studying Sanskrit and they speak Sanskrit there. They teach it to the, and so they taught me to speak Sanskrit a little bit. I was not very good, but it did, you know, and then I had a lot, you know, over the years I went back, I spent, the, I don't know, I guess almost six years off and on there. Mm -hmm. And I had uh, Jagannatha, Vedalankara, Chinmay, Chinmay uh, Maheshwari, uh, and several other teachers who, even though Chinmay says that I spoke Sanskrit like with, a, a, uh, you know, one of those uh, logs that you bar a door with in my throat. <laughs> but still, I was, I could speak well enough that I could speak to South Indian pundits like an Esramana Chattanachari with whom I did that book. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't, he, maybe he knew a little English, but he couldn't speak English. So I was able to do that book. Gangesha is a really important figure with a lot of commentary. It's very difficult philosophically. Sanskrit is, is not as elliptical as some, but still quite, quite, quite 
difficult, but he is an editor. <laughs> He's one of, he was like one of the, I was really fortunate. He was one of the great editors and, you know, pundits. And they have a, once at the French Institute there, they had a Brahmodja and he was in charge. And all, all the pundits came from all over India, you know, arguing in Sanskrit. He, 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 he was just terrific. And uh, I think they've even had a conference in his honor since he passed away a few years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he, you know, wrote original material in Nyaya on Gangesha and others. Anyway, so we, we sat down and read text for every, I don't know. Oh, I got to, oh, Hawaii tried to, uh, I mean, after I went back to, you know, got my PhD, went back to Harvard, went to Harvard Graduate School and so on. I continued my association with India, but, you know, with every fellowship I got, I'd always go back there. Right. And, uh, but Hawaii tried to hire me one time and... So in order to keep me, I got a deal from the University of Texas to do a split teaching so that I taught a heavy load through December and then half courses beginning in March. And so I went to India every year uh, from uh, for about, I don't know, eight or nine years in a row, wow. in the 90s and 2000 from December to April. Uh, this is in addition to six years I lived there at the Shribanu Ashram and, the, you know, graduate studies and so on, going back and forth, and eventually with my wife. Uh, this was in addition to that. And so I went, you know, and we would just read Sanskrit every day for about, you know, for about, what, three months, three to four months at a time. And that's how I was able to translate the Tatwa Chintamani, which is, you know, uh, like I say, it's, you know, it's late and very dense philosophy, quite subtle in its arguments and uh, presupposes a lot of familiarity with uh, the other schools and so on. So, so, so with his help, uh, you know, he started, he gave, actually he gave me a running commentary in Sanskrit, in sort of simpler Sanskrit, and I tape recorded it. Wow. And I'd go back to Texas, right, and work on it. And even when I would commute, I'd put his Sanskrit tapes into the, into the, you know, uh, into the car as I had about a 45-minute commute and listened to it. So I got, I don't know my ability to, I've fallen off a little bit, but sure. that, that's how I got to, and, and so, you know, I don't know, from the get-go, I was a specialist in classical Indian philosophy. That's why University of Texas hired me, even. Right. They may, you know, I don't know, uh, I mean, surely there are uh, people who are better uh, philosophers and Sanskritists in this area, but I don't know, maybe, I don't know, the Eclat of Harvard or something. I got a job and just sort of held on in the philosophy department, kind of rare, right? And there are not very many people in philosophy departments who have my special specialization. Sure. sure. So I had to teach their, uh, you know, regular courses as well as I, they let me teach always one course on classical Indian philosophy every every year and finally I got it up so that's all I was doing right. but at first I had to teach you know introduction to logic introduction to ethics uh, you know theory of knowledge just a regular uh, you know uh, palette of philosophy and uh, then you know one of the four courses each year would be 
something in classical Indian philosophy or even modern like Neo-Vedanta. Sure. Okay, there's my background. So when you were in your PhD program, um, I, you did philosophy, right? So were you... Yeah, 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 I combined Sanskrit and philosophy. Since I've been an undergraduate at Harvard, when I got into the Harvard Graduate School, I was a good friend with Robert Nozick, uh -huh. as an undergraduate, and so he, he and the Sanskrit guy, Ingalls, yeah, uh, allowed me to do a, a, a combined degree. Right. I, I actually learned... Maybe it was around the same time you were there. I learned from uh, Sanskrit from uh, Dr. Prem Singh from University of Delhi, who oh, wow. at the time also was uh, uh, probably in, in the late 60s, early 70s, was probably, he was a student of Ingalls too. So, oh, I, so uh, I mean, what, that's... What's his uh, name? Dr. Prem Singh. He, he was in the linguistics department in Delhi, uh, oh. Delhi University. Oh. Uh, but he's, I think he's passed away since then. Um, so, I mean, it, it, Ingalls is obviously a, a luminary within the, especially in the Harvard field in Sanskrit, yeah. right? Um, but Ingalls, uh, but, but Nozick was the guy, I'm telling you, who was uh, really my mentor more than Ingalls. Ingalls was just a disciplinarian. It made you <laughs> in the test every day in Sanskrit class because you had to... You had to read and translate in front of me and hardly ever opened his mouth except to say, oh, Mr. Phillips, that is not an absolute you know, uh, ablative singular. That's a nominative plural, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, at this, but at this time, you've already, you, you spent years in India studying Sanskrit with other Sanskritists, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. With, 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 with uh, classical pundits and people who had learned, you know, ponomy instead yeah. of the Western grammatical categories. Ingalls, you know, used the Latin categories. So in a way, I had to start all over again with him uh, as opposed. But I had a leg up on a lot of the students right. because I had had, you know, two, three, you know, by the end of it, you know, four or five years of Sanskrit study in India. So, I mean, how did the, the comparative method or uh, pedagogy of Sanskrit taught in India, in the Indian method versus the, I guess, the, the Western method? How does that... How, well, or, I don't know. It depends on the different people. I remember, I remember I once, I had my uh, next to last year as a graduate student, I got a Fulbright and spent a year in India. And I, I went to a Varanasine study. And, and there was this way of studying that was very sort of, teacher intensive we'd read a text but the teacher would translate it or something and i just would tell the pundit that i'm sorry i got to be more active than that mm -hmm. uh and uh, the same with ramana jatana chart i mean we just read the lines together and i'd have to say spushtum right right or ulti spushtum to keep <laughs> him getting to go on and uh uh yeah, there I was, you know, he was such a great man. I was, you know, I didn't interrupt so much. But I did, um, with my ashram teacher, Jagannatha Vedalankara, who was um, really uh, brilliant, intellectual, and traditionally trained. I did, we got to be friends. He went, one year we went, uh, we lived in a hill station together, and um, with my wife, I got married, and um, 
And uh, yeah, you know, he, he was quite amenable to what I want to do. And we, you know, we just, we would sit down and read classical text. Right, right. So uh, can, can you tell us like, how was it at that time? I mean, this was probably when um, a lot, a lot more Western people were coming into India to, uh, to get more into the spirituality yoga and Sanskrit yeah. and these things. Mm-hmm. How did the traditional pundits, you know, Ramaja Tatacharya probably was traditional pundit. How do they respond to having teaching, you know, this esoteric, some of this esoteric knowledge or things that might've been only kept within the community? To uh, well, um, you know, first of all, in the Shribindo Ashram, there was a real, effort to be um what should we say uh internationalist or global um i don't know i was many people have been surprised that ns ramanaja tadachari would study with me i don't think he would have eaten i don't think he would eat with me right <laughs> right but, uh, but I think because of my interest in yoga, he thought me as thought of me as a non-exploiter or something. I don't know. Okay. I have a friend. I won't name his name, who is uh, a, a uh, you know uh, he's grown up in India, Indian, and uh, he's not a Brahmin and doesn't mm-hmm. have a sacred thread and. He tells me Ramana Chattacharya would not study with him. Interesting. Yeah. And there are other pundits. And he's been told, he said, well, just put on a thread. You know Sanskrit so well. Just put the thread on. <laughs> he said, no, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did you learn Tamil at all when you were in? I tried. I learned a little bit. I'm sorry. I should have learned more. But no, I was, you know, hey, I'm not all that uh, great at languages. And so, you know, Sanskrit's enough. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I tried. And there was a, a good friend of mine in Texas uh, who recently pa- passed away, Shankaran Radhakrishnan, who was a great Tamil instructor. He wrote a textbook in Tamil. Yeah. And he, he lived in Pondicherry for a while and had a house in Mysore. I, I made some effort to learn the alphabet and so on. But, and and I, I don't know. I know that high Tamil has a lot of Sanskrit loan words. Oh. Oh, it's not an Indo-European language. You no. gotta. There's a, a lot of work. Yeah. I'm sorry. I I gave up. I, no, no. It makes. I mean, I, the only reason I know Tamil is because my family is right. So I grew up learning both Tamil and Kannada as my first languages. Oh. And then and and then my dad taught me bits of Sanskrit when I was young. Uh-huh. Because, and then so the pronunciation, all the prayers and stuff, my dad, my my father taught me. So I. Uh, I had a good basis in all these languages. I can read. I can read Tamil very slowly, um, and and but high Tamil. Oh, you know the Devanagari alphabet. Oh, Devanagari, I can read. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, that I can read much but better. The, that's real, and you know, it's not just Tamil. I mean, the every South Indian language has a slight Malayalam and uh, yeah. different alphabet. I mean, it's not like you can just. So I've lived in different places. My, you know, gosh, the place I like to go now is Kerala. That's yeah. where. I, they got all these Ary- Ayurvedic hotels down there at the you know, <laughs> that's right. and so on. <laughs> You're in Los Angeles, but gosh, that's a beautiful country down there. I, I look, I like Tamil Nadu and everything, right. but if I, if I there's also a few uh, Sanskrit Vidya Pitas that are I've thought about retiring in, but anyway, right now I'm in New Mexico. So when you were do, also doing your PhD, did you also have to 
do Greek and learn like the no 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 no, 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 no. no. I, no. I, stri I was strictly a philosophy person okay who, who got interested in yoga and yeah. and Indian spirituality went to the Shrivendra ashram and there you know started learning Sanskrit and became a Sanskritist as well as a philosopher now I I, I did also when I was in on the on the Fulbright uh, right. for a year, uh, in 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 Varanasi. Um, I uh, I learned some Hindi, and my wife is fluent in Hindi. Yeah. And uh, so, and also, you know, Hindi, there are a lot of Hindi commentaries on Sanskrit texts. Like, mm -hmm. I, I know, I remember one in Sri Arsha, the Kandana Kandya has a really nice Hindi commentary. And, you know, it's such high Hindi. Once you know Kike Ka, <laughs> and things like that, it's really just a kind of Sanskrit. It's like without, a Prakrit, yeah. <laughs> without, the, without the genitive case and so on, right? Yeah. So, so I can, and you know, and I, I, because of the community of speaking there in Pondicherry and also with Ramana Chattacharya and others, you know, speaking Sanskrit a little bit, uh, also with some colleagues like uh, Rindam Chakraborty, um, speaking Sanskrit. Um, I can when I, I I don't really speak Hindi, but I start speaking and I can't, you know I you know I say pustak instead of kitab yeah and, and, and so people think oh you are you know such high Hindi I don't know Hindi at all <laughs> but 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 you know hey I can pass so what are your thoughts that to, in order to do Indian philosophy one must know Sanskrit, right? Like with the Western world, you don't necessarily have to know Greek. Uh, well, I tell you, I, yeah, I do. I have, you know, with Plato and Aristotle and other Greek philosophers have been so, there's such long traditions of translation and commentary on them that you can be a specialist in Aristotle and not really know Greek. Right. It's possible. I mean, you know, I think at the best universities, the Aristotle, and Plato specialists do know Greek, but plenty of people teach Greek philosophy. Right. Uh, hey, I've lectured on Plato. <laughs> yeah, I, I know nothing of Greek, and, uh, and that's just sort of common in the world of philosophy. But classical Indian philosophy has not been digested to the same extent by the, you know, Anglophone philosophic community, so that uh, it's. I don't know. I think I'm, 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 I'm looking for the time where there can be people who really are specialists in Indian philosophies who don't know Sanskrit uh, or just some, you know, special terms, uh, Brahman, Vyapti, I don't know. Sure. That, but I don't think that time has come yet. So, so when I've had Sanskrit graduate students, right. I, I have, uh, uh, six successful PhD students who've gotten jobs at academia. Right. And I, I've made all of them uh, learn Sanskrit. And the reason, one of the reasons I ask is, you know, obviously Vyakarana is such a huge part of any sort of, you know, textual exegesis or right. hermeneutics, right? right. Um, and especially when you get to the Vedantic section where they have to, you know, uh, work through Brahma Sutra, the Upanishads, right. and the right. Gitas, like right. the words and how grammar plays is so important right. in, in their philosophical traditions. Right. Do you do you see that being overcome, or do you see any corollary on the Western side that 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 would kind of um, be like, I guess, a, a precedence as to how that would change? 
in, on the India side? Well, uh, actually, I think I may uh, disagree with you slightly okay. on Vyakarana, um, which does not seem so important to me in the Vedantic tradition that runs through the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita on into classical Vedanta. It seems to me that the central ideas there uh, can be rendered. I mean, some be, sometimes the poetry is not rendered very well, but it, it's really more in, in Nyaya and, uh, and even more than Nyaya, in Mimamsa, right. where um, the language is important. Nyaya is important because of um, logic and fallacies which you want to say, okay, that spills over into Vedanta, but Vedanta is so much concerned with, um, you know, upasana, bhava. I see, I see Vedanta as a as a uh, a tradition centered on the practice of meditation and other forms of yoga, mm. and aiming at uh, a kind of transformed person with a, a mystic psychology, as you can sure. tell from my yoga book, uh, etc. And surely, I mean, I know there's a tradition in Vedanta that, from Padmapada, that, you know, the Mahavakyas, you know, Tattvamasi, Soham, and so on, uh, are thought of as triggers of mystical awareness, of yogic awareness. And I know, you know, Ramanuja is one of the ones that cr criticize him. But even in that Shankara tradition, Pamapada is not the only voice. I mean, I mean, and Shankara, I mean, you know, sure, he has respect for the Mahavakyas. But, you know, Dhamma, right, what is it? Dhamma Yama Dehari Yukta, right? You, you've got to be... Uh, self-controlled, calm, etc. Those are the real prerequisites, right? And he saw and okay, you know, and and yeah, of course, and and and, and Nyaya has Kashkangesa has this real, you know, sort of ongoing battle with Mamamsa, how to understand injunctions and testimony and so on. Um yeah, yeah, there it's very important. I don't think so much, I don't think it's so much the grammar in the narrow sense, mm. but grammar, it's more like qualification, uh, bits of knowledge or thoughts. Uh, you know, an entity is qualified, like you have an individual that is qualified by being a tree. So you right. said a tree or cow. You say, ah, cow. And so that gets analyzed by Nyaya. That, that there is an individual qualified by the universal cowhood. Yeah, and, and, and so there, in, any, in any verbalizable thought, there's really two elements. There's what is qualified or the qualificandum, that sort of particular thing that has various attributes like cowhood, but also other ones like, I don't know, living a certain period of time, being a certain color, I don't mm -hmm. wait, and so on. So that's really feeds into the logic. But and the and and Vedanta, sure, Vedanta learns from Nyaya about how to argue. And so you might want to say, oh, that comes into Vedanta, but that's not really their focus. 
their focus is on the message of the Upanishads right. and these large metaphysical issues, right? And those large metaphysical issues and the reason, you know, the reasoning ab about those metaphysical issues, I don't think is really so language dependent. No, in that sense, I, I would agree with you, right? Because if you look at the Nyaya text, and you've, you point this out both in your uh, yoga book and, and, and I think in Gangesha's too, is that even though they might argue for Ishvara, they don't really have any sense of what Ishvara is or is not or the qualities where the Vedantic texts spend all their time talking about who Ishvara is. And That's right. Yeah. So yeah, it, yeah. Nyaya is kind of minimalist. They say, okay, Ishvara has to be Sarvajnya yeah. in order to do what Ishvara needs to do, which is also Ishvara has to be Vibhu in order to be able to put together atoms which ordinarily are not conjoined. And right. so Ishvara has to have that ability. But we don't speculate about Ishvara's nature beyond what we need to complete our metaphysical system. Right. To see, you know, things like, you know, how macro objects come to be, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Ishvara has, sort of the ideas of Ishvara, I don't know, they're, uh, we, have, we, we, we arrive at them by inference uh, from other positions we, we know, uh, you know, that are maybe empirically or experientially right. uh, known. Uh, and, and, but that's not the way Vedanta or... Uh, uh, Mimamsa uh, proceeds, right? And 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 so, and with Vedanta, I I don't know. I know that I have I don't know uh, a certain perspective on this that comes out of uh, my life in the Sri Aurobindo Ashram, my interest in yoga, and so on. But but again, uh, I see uh, Vedanta as uh, centered on um, some special experiences, Brahma Sakshatkara, you know, yeah. meditation, uh, an inner world, you know, the Upanishads, you know, the, you know, the four stages of the self and sleep and so on and so forth. Those seem to me not so dependent on language. I mean, yeah, look, I there, are certain, there are certain things like chanting the Om. Yeah. I don't know. That seemed to me magical. I can't give any rational explanation for it. Yeah. Or even some mantras, you know. Uh, I don't know. There's some that my Jagannatha uh, Vedalankara taught me that I, I love and chant all the time. I love yeah. chanting those. But they, even those have meaning. You know? Um, Sarvani, Sarvam Brahmo, Panasharam, Maham Brahma, Nirakuryam, Mama Brahma, Nirakarot, Anirakanamastu, Anirakanamastu, Tratmani Nirateo, Panashatsu Dharmas, Te Mai Santu, Te Mai Santu, Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. And I, yeah, I don't know. Those are great. Those are wonderful. But there's still, you know, that mantra says, may I have the qualities of those who are meditating on the self as talked about in the Upanishads. Right. So it's not really the mantras. 
it's the ideas, right? Sure. It's the qualities of the, you know, self, et cetera, et cetera. So that seems to me. So, so I think it's unfortunate that Vedanta sometimes has become too text-centered as sure. opposed to yoga. Because I see the Upanishads as really yogic texts. Interesting. I mean, I, 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 in, in some sense, I do too, right? Because they're kind of, they're not forming a necessarily Vedantic ide ideology at that point. They're explaining their experiences right. in, a, in a format of either, uh, you know, a, a dialectic or a dialogue. Um, right. and, and or it's, poetry. It, or sometimes yeah. poetry. Hunting, you know, yeah. you know, like, you know, what did the, what did the sun thunder say? The You know, where, where, where the, the, the gods and the humans and the asuras come up and ask Prajapati, yeah, yeah, yeah. give us a new Upanishad. One of the few times the word Upanishad is used in the Upanishad. And he, each group, he says, duh. Duh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Duh. And yeah. They, they, they interpret it differently, right? Which is so interesting, right? Right. The, the yeah, what is it? The gods, uh, damyata, control yourself. Yeah. <laughs> play all the time, right? Uh, humans, datta, give. Give, yeah. And, and the demons, damyata, control yourself. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, those are no, no, diadwam, diadwam, be compassionate. Yeah. So, and so, I don't know, there's some, there's not, what is that? That's sort of like a parable. I don't know, it's, in a way, it's kind of, it's poetic, and I don't know, it's, it's sort of for contemplation how different groups, even Shankar says this, this is for different parts of our being, the high, higher parts of ourselves need to restrain themselves. Hu human parts of us need to be giving, practice karma yoga instead of taking, and the lower parts of ourselves need to be compassionate. Right. So I don't know. What is that? That's, that's in a way a kind of wisdom text. Or, but it's, it seems to be related to uh, a, a yogic discipline, right, of these... Right. I mean, uh, uh, many of these doctrines that like, you know, in Vedantic Upanishad are really based on this yogic sense of, you know, like, uh, of sensing the inner self and how to, and how to get through these how various connect, layers. How yeah. to get through, you know, the different kosha, right? Yeah, the exactly. Kosha and the prana kosha and the manomaya kosha and so on to get yeah. this thing that survives death, right? And, you know, and Yajnavalkya go off and they'll talk, ah. <laughs> you know, eyes, you know, let me give you the deep thing here, you know, what's going on. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, no, I, uh, I, yeah, I think a lot of classical Vedanta philosophy gets a little too uh, obsessed with a proof text. Right, right. So that the Vishishta Dvaita Vedantans throw certain texts at the Advaita Vedantans, you know, counter with another text, and they just. But I mean, but but that's more on the 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 polemic side, right? In, in their, yeah. each of their uh, particular sadhanas or practices, yeah, that's true. They change. They don't even really care about the Vedantic test. Like for example, in Vishishta Dvaita system, it's all about the Divya Prabandhams. They're more concerned with the esoteric experience of of Krishna, Vishnu, Rama, whatever. Yeah, 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 but you know, they don't write about that so much. Right, right. So that when you look at the philosophy, sometimes it does seem like a little bit of, I don't know, yeah, sort of theology. Yeah, it, it's, it's a lot of 
wrangling with each other about the right yeah. conception of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah and, you know. But yeah. it's but to me it's also funny because like when you go into the practice within the Hindu world, no one really cares about these like theological, philosophical differences yeah. outside of talking to each other when you have a avada or something. Yeah, that's what that that's why you know the neo Vedanta is really I, I you know wonderful. It seems to me you know Radhakrishnan and many others. Yeah, I think there's a whole slew of really interesting neo Vedantins. Uh, Swami Vivekananda, Mahatma Gandhi himself. Uh, that you know that uh, sort of uh, read the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, but don't really pay so much attention to the Brahma Sutra, right? Or the disputes within the uh, sub schools, right? Right. No, it, it, it's interesting to me because I think like you brought this point up briefly in your yoga book, but I think in some ways modern Hindu thought has taken on the Jain idea of siyat, right? kind of like this maybe this maybe that maybe and it's kind of like it's become this very hodgepodgey perspective evil um, oh i see yeah hmm. i mean that's just a perspective i have i'm not entirely sure no, i know i know look i this uh Shadvada and uh i find all that very interesting and i something i think there you know i think it's tied to ahimsa and 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 i think there's something really wonderful about um, trying to see things from another's point of view. And right. uh, Shankara in his Gita com commentary talks about ahimsa as seeing, you know, seeing yourself and the other and knowing that, you know, just like myself, another doesn't like pain. Right. Uh, and, 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 and the China's are really fair. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, I think it's misinterpreted slightly because the Chinas actually try to refute people. They, they, they'll be fair, but they do, uh, you know, argue for a particular uh, view. And yes, uh, I, I, that outline of a, a book that I'm working on or... Mm -hmm may well work on about uh, Shankara and Aurobindo on the Isha Upanishad and other things. I think my, what, what I'd really like to see is more unity in Vedanta um, and interest in, in uh, the sort of metaphysics, the theistic metaphysics or metaphysics of Brahman um, as, a, as a kind of real contender instead of this squabbling yeah. among, among uh, you know, so, okay, we're Hindus, they're, they're Muslims, they're Christians, right. we have our stuff, oh, okay, well, we can, or, you know, we have our texts, well, there may be some question about uninterpretive and so on. Uh, no, I guess, you know, being in this way, um, uh, an outsider and I don't know a globalist. Um, it, it, I, I feel that you know a lot of Christian and Orbindo and others tried to do this sort of present uh, a uh, a more uh, unified um, tradition. Uh, 
of, uh, you know, sort of not ignoring the different views that are expressed even in the Upanishads themselves. I mean, the Chandogya is a little different from the Brihadaranyaka, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, finding or following out the real interests which have to do with uh, uh, a kind of uh, uh, theism and uh, metaphysics of the absolute Brahman, uh, along with ways to know that in a very direct way, non-intellectually, through personal experience. That seems to me to be the real heart of uh, Vedanta, and you know, in the squabbling subschools, you you kind of you can can sort of miss the forest for the right, tree. Right, right. No, and and I agree because I, I mean sometimes like what what I end up thinking about is how how much can our logic and our ability to think actually help us understand any experience or yogic perception or 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 a divine experience of the world that we can would have. I don't, and I don't know if the intellectual capacity of human beings is yeah, capable of, sorry everyone, I got technical difficulties, so I got cut off, but um, as I was saying, um, and I was uh, briefly in, in the interim, I was talking to uh, Professor uh, Phillips, the difficulty or the maybe impossibility of trying to understand the universe from the perspective of either Brahman or Brahmagnana is vis-a-vis logic inference. Um, and, and you were talking about Sri Harsha. So if you, if you want to go ahead and, and like his response to this. Yeah, episode. there, the, well, Shankara has uh, in the second book of, uh, the, of the Brahma Sutra where the various schools, he has these great refutations of other systems and, you know, and when, even when it comes to creation, he says, you know, there are lots of different views of creation. And you get this idea that, that you know, that you live in a video, you're not going to be able intellectually to put together the way the world somehow looks from Brahman's perspective and everything else you know in the prapancha, the world of Vyavahara, of everyday experience. And so that, that's a thing that's also in Buddhism in Nargarja. And, and there's this great Sanskrit author of, a, I think, of the 11th century named Sri Harsha, who not only wrote the Kanda Kadya, um, delectables of refutation, the mass of them, that were mainly focused on the problems in Nyaya, where he says, give it up, you Nyaya, because you're not going to be able to intellectually figure out the world. You need to just pull back and meditate find the true self <laughs> and 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 he also wrote an, an, an unbelievably beautiful polished epic poem named the Naishada Charita mm-hmm. where I mean it, it, there's one place in that poem where you might say oh it's didactic no it's one of I think one of the great moments in world literature where uh, Damayanti, it's, it's taken with the story taken from Mahabharata, yeah. where, where Damayanti has a swayamvara, and and uh, and so she's already in love with Nala, who's been reported to her in various ways, and 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 but she's so beautiful that four of the gods, I think it's Agni, uh, Indra, um, uh, I think. He, 
Yamaha, uh, and I've forgotten the other, maybe Butter. Uh, the the uh, four guys who are in love with her, and so they imitate. Nella, yeah. They, they, they put on a disguise as Nella. So there, there are five Nellas, one true Nella and four uh, gods. And, and so who does he have as the master of ceremonies? Saraswati, the goddess of speech. And so introducing these suitors for her hands, she says each time one comes in a bit of poetry that can be read two ways. So... It can, one way, it, it's slesha, double entendre, double meaning. One way it's read, it's a description of Nala, and the other way it's a description of Agni. <laughs> and the next one, it's, the next one, it's, again, a description of Nala, or read another way, a description of, Indra, uh, yeah. and so on, and through, through the five, uh, and, and so Damayante's confused. She, she doesn't see the double entendre, which is very subtle. Yeah. And so then she prays and meditates, and a, and, and a voice says to her, study the words of, of Saraswati. She goes back and she gets the double meaning and yeah. is able then to recognize the true Nella whom she chooses as her husband. And, and then he says, well, that's kind of like Advaita Vedanta. You have to be able to see through the false, <laughs> the false pretender. But I just think that's wonderful. I mean, because most, you know, be, when you're, if you're going to write a work of art, you, you know, it's really hard, and you try to lower expectations. Right. But what does Sri Arshi do? He, I mean, Saraswati? He puts words in the mouth of Saraswati? I mean, that, what higher expecta expectations for poetry could you have? And what he does is come up with the most beautiful double entendres. Right. I think that's one of the great, anyway, so he wrote a work of philosophy. I mean, he didn't stop. I mean, he's an anti-intellectual, but he's the most intellect, intellectual person imaginable, right? Right. Because, uh, yeah, in his ability to show how we're not really able to put it all together. Right. In the context of some deeper experience of your own self and consciousness. So, so given all this, how did you decide that you wanted to study Gangesha? Um, I must say that was pretty much a, uh, a career move because uh, Nyaya is the philosophy that is uh, sort of the most similar to contemporary analytic philosophy. And also, Nyaya is the, come on, Nyaya means a critical reasoning, right? The technical, right. Nyaya, the small n. And so, um, you know, in, the, in traditions from, you know, Plato, Aristotle, and so on, philosophy, the, the field, the metier, the skills are argument. So, um, I mean, you know, I love yoga and mystical experience, but you know, as a teacher and a professional academic and so on and a philosopher, it's argument. And Nyaya teaches all the schools argument, fallacies, right? The hatred bosses and I don't know, Nigrahastanas, all the fallacies and so on. And, 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 you know, I, and, and as a, you know, a, an employee of a university, I had to teach baby logic all the time. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, critical reasoning and, and so on. And 
and and also Nyaya was understudied. Uh, there, plus, look, there's all this literature in in Vedanta, uh, but some of the schools like Sankhya and Yoga, there really isn't so much literature. But Nyaya is a rich, rich, long tradition. And I don't know, just sort of looking around uh, and what my colleagues were interested in, et cetera, et cetera, and, and sort of the state of the profession and, you know, the, that has uh, you know, specialization in the study of classical Indian philosophies. I just saw Gangesha as the guy who was the least accessible, who should be accessible. Right. And then I was lucky enough to be able to find Ramana Jutanacharya, who, but, you know, who's a great Nayaka, but in his heart of hearts, he's a Vishishta Dwaita Vedanta, and he had... Right. So, so that's not unusual for people to have a sort of professional outside as a teacher and philosopher, as a Nayaka. I was kind of like a traditional pundit in that way. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in their heart of hearts, they, you know, really loved the Bhagavad Gita and... Uh, the Upanishads. So how do they end, like, well, maybe even you, how did you or them end up reconciling being a, such an expert on this particular tradition, but uh-huh. also having these different emotional philosophical commitments? Oh, I don't know. A lot of people are like that, right? I mean, uh... and no, I, I, I mean, they are, but I mean, but, but given like some of these arguments can really cut to the core of, of other traditions, the traditions you believe, do you find that there is a lot of churn? Because, because one of my concerns with, and these are things I've brought up with other, other scholars is also, are we at this point so fixed on these schools as they were back you know, 500 years ago that we're not seeing the development of these schools due to new arguments and new evidence and new yeah, yeah, methodologies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I, um, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, the Neo Vedantins should be better appreciated, um, and um, but um, I, I don't know. Um, they're just. It seems to me that um, the. Not just in universities in the United States and Europe and so on, but in India itself, um, the richness of the classical tradition is not appreciated in the academic sphere. Right. I mean, there may be some aesthetics, Russia aesthetics, and so on, and, and I don't know, in linguistics, they may study Panini a little bit and so on, but. Um, there's a kind of break with the coming of science and so on. I mean, it's not just in India, but I'd say China. Sure. So, and, 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 um, I don't know. I, I take it that, uh, N.S. Ramana Jatanachari and others like uh, Jagannath, Jagannatha Vedalankara and others that I studied with, they really weren't part of the academic system of India, hmm. right? I mean, the Vidyapitas, they may say, you know, uh, you know, the Vishwa Vidyapita, that's supposed to be deemed a university, but it's not really looked at 
in India as on the same level as a university where, you know, I don't know, uh, geology and biology and all those right. sciences are, are taught. And so there needs to be a lot more integration, it seems to me, in study of the classical traditions. I, and, and, you know, I don't say that as, I don't know, as a, you know, in a political way. Sure a kind of retrenchment into your own tradition, but just having a sense of the richness of the classical tradition. And it seems like there was a kind of break with colonialism and there should be more integration. Yeah. Because I mean, like, even if you look at the history of Naya, I mean, Naya, you go Naya, then it becomes, joins in, it becomes Namya Naya, joins in the Visheshika, and then you have the yeah, Naya right. Gangesha. But then at some point, it, I mean, there's a continuity of change that's happening. But I feel like some point, what we're doing, especially people like me included, is we're just looking at the past and not thinking about how do these concepts apply to the world we're engaging with. Like, for example, how does Naya play a role in, in, Here's a book that you didn't look. See this? Can you see this book? Uh, yeah, 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 I see it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little embarrassed. It's a little expensive. I think they came out in paperback, but it's called uh, Epistemology in Classical. Is Indian. that from Rutledge? Yeah, Rutledge. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll get that then. It, yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I take up the Gettier problem at the end from uh -huh. a perspective. Yeah. And I think I, I actually, and I also argue in some other places in the introduction to uh, to the translation of Gungesha's Tatra Chintamani. They've got, I mean, it's for the, it, it's, it doesn't have, it's not entirely free of problems, but as a theory of knowledge of the everyday world, I'm not talking about yoga and knowledge sure. of Brahman at this point, but just, you know, there's a cup on the table, you know, here we are talking on computers, knowledge like that. It's a fantastic system. It's what's called an externalist system. It has talks about causal connections between the objects and the knowers. Right. On and on and on. And it's quite detailed. It has, uh, and I don't know, it's recommendable. It, to me, it should be a player in contemporary, totally contemporary epistemology. No, and I agree. I, I, I've always... Because right now, all you end up reading about is Vedanta and connected to quantum physics, how, you know, it's all like whoop-de-woo and everything. That's hard, that's hard to see. But yeah. Naya's having an epistemology of everyday knowledge is easy to see. Right, right. It's, it has to do with perception, uh, inference, uh, and testimony. Also, there's something called analogy. Which sure. It's a so, little arcane, but, but, you know, it's a very straightforward system, very sort of common sense and... Uh, I don't know. Uh, so, so my, my question to you, and then, in, 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 like, for example, in perception, right? Uh, in both, I, I, in the Indian system, it's it, or at least Nyaya, in some sense, even Samkhya, when you perceive an object, it, it, for it to be a proper cognition or 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 truthful cognition, it has to see the object as it is, right? Not that's right. not not through some sort of representationalism, which, in some sense, like in current biology right don't we think about the world through representationalism so how yeah. would nayak uh, contend with biological understanding or neurological understanding of perception um no problem um the transmission of information from the way the object is 
through the sense organs to, you know, our uh, uh, moments of cognition, knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Our, uh, our, the fresh news that we get from our, uh, from the, uh, the processes that originate in, in sensory connections. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, some of the, some of that's mysterious, but so what? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, we, no one understands today, today everything that goes on in that process, but the key idea here with Nyaya is that the process, when it's working correctly, is giving us knowledge. Right. And so when the conditions that are in place now, and if we know something like, I don't know, the object's too far away, you've got hepatitis, sure. uh, there are various things, I don't know. Glaucoma, whatever, yeah. You, I can see the two moons, et cetera, right. et cetera. We can identify what are called epistemic defeaters that even though any, any perception you take to be perceptual produced in that, and you just sort of automatically do so, you've got a right to assert the content, the information in that. Right. But there are various defeaters. Some are standing defeaters. Like, you know in advance that so-and-so is a liar. So that in testimony, you don't believe what that person says. But if an ordinary person says something, you just are, you, 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 you take it unless you have some reason for not believing. Same with perception. So you just sort of trust your senses unless you know that there's some special problem with the object. Like, I don't know, it's really small. Uh, we can't, you know, we can't perceive atoms. So we have to do complicated inferences to get stuff. Or optical it. illusions, right? Like so optical illusions. But, but they do have this whole, sort of approach that it seems to me is workable as an yeah. epistemology, as a theory of knowledge uh, without the, because the detail, the, the details of the scientific process, well, if we know that somebody's optic nerve is cut, I mean, they have sort of the equivalence of that. They know right. that, that people that are blind, right? Mm -hmm. They know people that are deaf, there's something wrong with their hearing organ, right? Uh, they, they knew stuff like that. And, and, and so, so, but, uh, you know, uh, what's so great to me about classical Indian uh, philosophy and, and especially epistemology is the phenomenology, right? Okay. Because I assume that Gangesha and so on had sense experience pretty much the way I do. Right. And, you know, trees, leaves, colors. <laughs> right. And, 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 so, and, and, He's sort of talking that way. He's talking, and they, you know, it's so, so I don't see that there's such a, such a big obstacle to understanding uh, what he and others have to tell us. Now, um, you know, again, this has to do with everyday knowledge, not, sure. not the kind of meditational no. no, 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 and I get that. I mean, so like, I'll, I'll pose this to you. So they use the typical example of a red flower, right? right. But uh, when you look at a red flower, you apprehend the color, you apprehend structure, you, you see all of that. But from our perspective, it, if you, it looks like the flower is red, but in the scientific explanation, the flower is actually not red, right? It's the red is, is coming into our eyes, but it's not but, red flower. But what we're interested in, right? what we're interested in is the knowledge that the flower is red. Right. Now, 
who cares what it's, how it's explained? Okay. We use, when you talk to somebody like, I don't know, your girlfriend or wife, she yeah. says, I really like to have some red flowers. Right. And you say, ah, well, that flower is red. Oh, yeah, well, that's a good one. Bring that one. So it's not so much about successfully bring the red flower. So didn't you in some way know yeah. that the flower was red? Right. And was it relevant to know that the red is a matter of no, no photons bounce? It's not really red in the sense that blah, 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 blah. So, okay. Uh, the the idea of upadis mind imposed properties that the that the qualificandum the tree or the flower mm -hmm. doesn't really possess that's an idea that's quite current in right. Nala, right but and they're and they're really worried about that true universals versus mind imposed properties you know jati right uh, as opposed to something that we impose upon the thing but that ontological project is so fraught with difficulties that the Nayakas ultimately seem to me to sort of give it up. They, okay. I don't know, Raghunatha uh, tries to get, but you know, so far as what we're really interested in, and that is getting along in the world, mm -hmm. action, knowledge guiding action, we can skip over some of those ontological problems. We don't, we realize that we don't get all the properties, particularly the tiny properties, relations of Adam. Look, when you see a person or your or the door, you don't see the backside. How much of a person, if I put my arm behind the door, right? I mean, are you seeing me or are you just seeing my arm? I mean, do you have to see, do you have to walk around and see my backside in order to say, hey, I saw a four? <laughs> No, I mean, we're always getting certain perspectives. We never get everything. Sure. Right? I mean, you know, come on. Uh, you, you, you are a sum of all kinds of time slices, right? Right. And, you know, I'm getting just a few of them. Uh, but, gosh, I feel like I'm acquainted with you now, even though it's through this medium and so on. Yeah. Uh, so, so, sure, uh, you know, there are lots of properties that you have that I, you know, um, and I'm not going to be aware of, so I don't. I don't get the whole thing as it is, really in itself. Right. But really, you know, I get enough to be able to tell Guha that I talk to you, and you know, I probably could recognize you. And sure, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so forth, right. Yeah. And uh, so, so yeah. So it's at that level of communication and action. Yeah. Where we're making choices, not in scientific explanation. I grant you. Nyaya is trying to complete with scientific explanations. It's ontology, you know, of, of, of four kinds of atoms, etc., is limited. Uh, yay, yay, yay. It's, uh, I, I wouldn't want to try to defend too much about its various ontological positions, though I don't know, some like the qualificandum qualifier distinction. There's some really good stuff in there, right. really good stuff about universals. Uh, but I think it's better with the logic, epistemology, theory of knowledge, and you know, everyday knowledge, not scientific knowledge. And yeah, I don't know. And then the deeper metaphysical questions, like, is there a, a Lord who decides the universe, uh, right. et cetera, et cetera? 
yeah, come on, those arguments are very abstract. And I don't know, they connect with arguments in, in the Western tradition from uh, Aristotle through Thomas Aquinas and sure. on and on and on. Right. So, no, I, I, I don't really think that uh, science undercuts very much of Nyaya or even classical Indian philosophy as a whole, except in, you know, maybe, you know, a little limited in Sankhya, this understanding of it. When, it, when you get to nature. Yeah. Okay. There, you know, it's, it's really proto-science. There, 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 I mean, Gangesha worries a lot about some of the operations of the sense organs, and he doesn't have it right. Right. But so, so what? I mean, it's, it's very interesting to see the, whether that's relevant. And I don't think it is relevant for most of the interactions we have in everyday life and everyday knowledge. Right, right. Now, now I want to kind of shift a little bit to, towards your yoga book, because the difficulty of talking about Gangesha stuff is so terse, and, and it's very, very scholarly. Like, you have to have a somewhat understanding of the Nyaya school and Buddhist schools and, and other schools of Indian time uh, around that time period to really get a sense of, of the, the theory that uh, Gangesha is putting forward, right? Um, so it, it's difficult for, I, I imagine most of our, my listeners don't have a sense of even basic Nyaya. To yeah, even, but but, but, but yeah. if they understand that for Nyaya, there are basically three ways we know things. Right. Perception, inference, and Testimony. Yeah, that's right. Pratyaksha Anumana Shabda. That's yeah. not arcane, right? I mean, no, that's... but that's, I mean, it's really interesting in that sense that, you know, Nyaya has the three, Shankara has six, right? He's, he, right. He, he puts uh, uh, analogy and, and uh, comparison and I forget, uh, Smriti is the last one, remember? Well, there's also uh, uh, non-perception. Non-perception. How, how, how do you know that the pot is not on the, on the floor? Right. I mean, is that an inference or is that a perception or is there some special mode of knowledge called non-perception? Right. That, 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 that is a kind of arcane topic, I grant you. Yeah, So, it, it, but it's interesting. To, I mean, it's funny because I think after the Nyaya schools, um, primarily all the other Hindu schools or all the traditional Vedantic schools buy into the three, only uh, like all the Vaishnavite schools definitely. And I even think Abhinava Gupta only has the three too, right? He has Pratyaprana Mahashabda. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and Vaisheshika tries to eliminate uh, uh, testimony as a form of inference where you know that the, that the testifier, the speaker is an expert and you also believe, you know, what experts say tend to be true. And so you make an inference of so-and-so has said P, so-and-so is an expert. So, so P is probably true. Uh, and, you know, Nyaya says, no, it's a, it's the Mamamskas are right. There's a special, way of knowing that comes from uh, verbal communication. Right. And really, I mean, you know, come on, that's a tremendously rich topic. And they make, oh, yeah. it's it, I mean, what they say about Lakshana, indirect indication, you know, yeah. is really interesting uh, about, I don't know, secondary meaning, Gangayam, Gosha, the, the villages in the Gosha, I mean, in the Ganga, where you know it's really on the bank of the... Bank of Ganga, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really, I mean, I, I mean, I know your readers might think, well, that's kind of arcane, but, but 
I think many would think that all philosophy is arcane. These yeah, are that's really true. mainstream philosophic topics that are addressed by Nyaya and some of the other schools. Now, it seems to me that Vedanta, they take, they, they read the Nyaya Codex. They learn this sort of how to reason, you know, sort of logic 101 is, is Nyaya. But then they're much more concerned with something that is hard to articulate. That's they, right meditational experience right which is all like shabda basically <laughs> i mean in some sense yeah <laughs> well shabda in directing you to its importance Important. and maybe how it's to be understood but um and i don't know in bhamapada those mahavakyas seem to be really i don't know super special right but, it, uh, but not in all of Vedanta. I will. I will tell you my 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 own um, understanding and and like learning Nyaya has really helped me when I was a lawyer when I practiced as an oh, attorney. Right? A lawyer, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a recovering lawyer. <laughs> <Let's> just, <laughs> 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 but it, but it's, it's really interesting because like when you look at things like the rules of evidence that these states yeah. and the federal government put out, there's so many. So many areas where the nyayas cover so much of this, especially when it comes to, to like testimony, right? Most of yeah. everything that happens in court is testimony. So yeah. how yeah. Naya has this entire breakdown of what qualifies as good testimony, how you should uh, understand it. And, yeah. and even in the modern sense, I feel like, like even legal theories now about testimony are not nearly as strong as Nyaya. Nyaya has a much stronger basis of what would qualify as a, as an uh, authority or uh, a testimony that should be accepted. Right. Um, yeah, and the basic idea in, with testimony is, uh, is that um, is uh, innocent until reasonably challenged. In fact, they th it, it's the idea that when somebody, unless you know uh, something that undercuts a person's testimony, it's it's unlike the mainstream attitude in Western philosophy of testimony that you have to you first you understand it and then on the basis of other evidence you accept it or not. Right. To some the basic attitude of Nyaya is it's natural to accept what people tell you. Right. So what they're really interested in is when you learn that it's wrong or how you learn that it's wrong. And so the fallacies of testimony and the fallacies of reasoning right. from the Nyaya Sutra on, they have like you know, ways people go wrong. And so, so that tradition, there's a, there's a, a philosopher named Ananda Vaidya at, I think he's at uh, University of California, San Jose, who, He's really on a crusade to get this rich tradition of epistemic defeaters. You know, so the idea is you get information, you get fresh news, you live, you, you live by that. Right. You know, people tell you stuff. So. But then you, you, oh, you find out that it's a liar who's been telling, then you don't believe it anymore. Or you find out that there's this mistake made in the logic, then you don't believe it anymore. You know, so, so, so that tradition of fallacies is so we start with something good. It's not, it's not this universal skepticism with Nyaya. We right. start with a presumptive 
attitude of, of knowledge, that it's something good. We've got information. Right. And, and, and it can be undercut and you give it up. And you're, I, I think you're, you're really right in this, right? Like we start, even, even as a young kid, we start with our, if our parents tell us this is your father, this is your mother, you take it as, yeah, true. Okay, that's true. Unless it's a lot, it would take a lot to overthrow that. <laughs> right, right. Or, or, or anything about the world, anything anyone tells us about the world, don't put your hand in the fire or you'll get burnt. Well, I take that as true. I might not have never experienced it. I've never had someone like, you know, shoot me with a gun. And, but they tell me, hey, it's painful, and you don't want to get shot. I'm like, I'll take it as true. Right? There's so much of, of the world yeah, that we right. take, just right. the entire world that we build is based, based really on testimony, right? Yeah, because there's right. so much yeah, we don't experience. Trustful attitude is natural to us. Right. So now, I once had a student, when I was telling this, tell me, well, that was maybe true, maybe in classical Indian times, but in our, in our uh, age, there's just so much, you know. Information. Information. <laughs> A BS out there that maybe we can't have that attitude anymore. I don't know. Well, I mean, but but it pause. I must say, but it does make you pause to some extent. But then the the tools in the ayah give you like you know they should be truthful and not trying to deceive you. So like that requires some level of research, and then you can determine if that like for example right. And also in in philosophy, we're always looking at inferences. Right. That's how they proceed, and and you know it's and so and. Evaluating inferences and checking for fallacies is how Nyaya looks at the business of philosophy. Right. And I think that's taken over for, uh, from, with the other schools. It's just that, you know, the, the subject matter becomes uh, different. Right. It, it becomes, you know, how do we understand these injunctions to do various rituals or how do we understand these injunctions to meditate or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Uh, so, so in a way, um, uh, Nyaya is a kind of baseline uh, training in in argument that right. the other schools then use in different ways, including Vedanta. Right, right. Though it's Vedanta is so broad, there are you know there are exceptions. It's like Sri Harsha, who we were talking about earlier. He sort of turns it all against. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> He's so good at it. He's better than the Nyayakas. So he ends up, I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, Sri Harsha was before Gangesha, right? So Gangesha yeah. wrote, because and, and, Sri Harsha was between Udayana and Gangesha, I believe, right? right. So right. He, he, I mean, Gangesha probably wrote his books. Yeah. In fact, I've been, I, I'm, uh, I've been told, I take it on authority, that Sri Harsha became a kind of standard text within the Nyaya schools, the, the tolls. Uh, and uh, he, I, this I know is true. Um, Gangesha's son, Vardhamana, wrote a commentary on Sri Harsha's Kandanakandakadya. Wow. So he took it very seriously. And Sri Harsha is mentioned by Gangesha. Yeah, and, and he uh, he tries to refute his refutation of her diet, uh, and he does it, but in a very interesting way, in a pragmatic pragmatic way. He says, "You know, you, uh, Sri Harsha presents all this sort of standard skepticism about vyapti, natural pervasions, uh, entailment, natural entailments that underpin inference, like where there's smoke, there's fire." Right. And, 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 and 
uh, Gengesha responds, he says, okay, the skeptic who wants to question, well, you haven't seen all instances of smoke and you haven't seen all instances of fire. You don't, you can't be sure, you know, iron. You know, they say everything that's earthen is scratchable by uh, iron, but hey, you know, then they discovered diamonds. It's not really scratchable by iron. Uh, so you, you can't make these generalizations, says Sri Harsha. And then, and then Gangesha come back and he, and he says, well, okay, us, watch the skeptic's behavior. Notice that when he wants to, to, to get smoke, to get rid of mosquitoes, he starts a fire. Right. When he speaks to refute his opponent, he assumes that speaking is understood by the <laughs> opponent, right? Yeah, and, 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 and so on. So, in a, so he has this kind of pragmatic refutation of Sri Harsha. say, look, we just use these assumptions of enta natural entailments in our everyday life. Right. We could be wrong. We're not saying that we're infallible. We do learn, we get, but again, we have the right to believe that wherever there's smoke, there's fire until we find a smokeless fire. Right, right. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. It's, uh, to me, I, I just find it really interesting how these, these people thought and they thought deeply on, on real everyday experiences because it mattered to them as to how we're engaging with the world in some sense. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, indeed. And, and, and I, I think it's, it's really interesting. It just, especially like the, the, the seven step syllogism that, you know, like in the traditional Indian sense, like they have to point out the countervailing point, right? Uh, uh, unlike the, like the kitchen, unlike the, unlike the right. lake, right? The fire lake. <laughs> it's always, it's just, why the mind that had to think about that as opposed to the three step is kind of interesting to me. Yeah, and also, yeah, paying very close attention to inductive evidence. Right, right. Correlations that we find in nature. So uh, do you have a sense of why deduction wasn't as big of a... Well, I think uh, there is deduction. I think the standard syllogism, uh, you know, the standard argument, right. is, so it's, it's, it's inductive. It has an inductive side to it. Right. It's, it integrates induction, and but at its heart, it's deductive, right? Uh, you know, um, uh, wherever smoke, there fire. You have that universally quantified expression: wherever um, S, uh, there F, right? And A, uh, the mountain uh, is S. Uh, therefore, it is F. That's deductive, right? That that's that straight. Uh, now. Um, in in the West, um, logic logical form is abstracted away from um, knowledge, and so that um, you can have a valid argument right. with premises that are not only false but that you know that are false. Like all men are good, right? You know that they're right. Right. right, and you just follow out the implications. Well, they have that notion in classical India, but that's not what they're ultimately interested in. They're interested in knowledge and because knowledge helps us get along in the world. Right. And when we have successful action, it's guided by knowledge. So we're interested in logic and deduction as serving the acquisition of knowledge so that it was not abstracted. So sure. deduction was not abstracted, but it's embedded in the syllogism or whatever you want to call that. So in the sense, would you equate knowledge and truth together? 
or would that, would that, is that yeah, not? knowledge? Yeah, sure. But you know, you don't have knowledge if it's not true. Right. You know? uh, so, uh, so yeah, they do have notion, and you know, they they worry about the nature of truth, and they sort of have a correspondence theory. You know, this gets in uh, to uh, some really tough issues about uh, qualification of the, you know, what we were talking about earlier, properties and property bearers. Right. Um, and they think that a statement, a perceptual statement, one known by testimony, inference will minimally have something as qualified by a qualifier. Right. So, so even a one word statement like cow is really elliptical for something like there is a cow right. or something like that. And so, which is elliptical for that thing was individual qualified yeah. by the property being a cow. Cow. That's right. <laughs> and so, so, and so that's what it is to be true. So, you know, and there's a lot of fighting about this. And this way, you might want to, you, I don't know. I just take this for granted, I must say. But the Buddhists don't. They have a pragmatic theory of truth. Right. Um, Which Shankara kind of takes. Yeah, and modern people, you know, there's a lot of talk about truth and so on. You know, where these perspectivalism and so on. And I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about that. It's too hard. Right. I, I just sort of, okay, maybe this qualificandum qualifier schema that's basic to Nyaya, that right. is underlying all information exchange, <laughs> even, you know, information originating in, in sense experience, all, you know, knowledge is verbalizable in their view. And so... And whenever you say anything, you're always going to say something about something as having certain properties. So, so, the, so, so I, I don't know. I mean, that's just too deep for me. I mean, I know that there are, you know, these anti-realists and so on, and even Sri Harsha attacks that it's, I, 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 I don't know. It's, that, that's a really deep issue. Right. And, and just, I, I don't know what I said. So just one more question on, 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 on Nyaya, and then we'll go to the yoga book. Um, so in Nyaya, there's this idea of visheshayate, right? The, the objecthood or universal objecthood, correct? Um, how would that, is that any way, shape, or form connected to, pun intended, the theory of forms, uh, uh, the Platonic theory of forms? Uh, the yeah, universal. Uh, yeah, uh, in, in, in the sense that, um, Plato recognized uh, that uh, certain things that we say about things uh, repeat. Right? I mean, there, there, are cert there are certain arguments that get us to universals. Um, you know, this is red, that's red, that other thing is red, or here, here's a human being, there's a human being. And gosh, we use that same idea, human being you know, for all these different things, all these different individuals. And, you know, they're, they're spread out. They're not, you know, they're not connected like a body of water or something like that. Mm -hmm. they're, they're spread out. And so what is it? So um, 
yeah, there seems to be something, some sort of property, human beinghood, that is present in all these individual instances. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, some people want to say that that theory of universals comes into India through Alexander's <laughs> invasion of the Punjab. I don't think he got the, all the way. He got close. I mean, yeah, he got he close. the Indus or something. Because, you know, Aristotle, they knew all the, you know, universal is a hot topic, right? All this repeatable properties. And, you know, I don't know, universals of universal. I, I just don't really think so. I just think that that's such a common feature of language. Right. You know, repeatability of properties, you know, that it just naturally emerges in Nyaya. I you know the Buddhists attack it. They say all those repeatable properties, they're just mind constructed. That sort of and 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 then you get the Mamamsikas one, you know, think the Veda is eternal and timeless and its ideas reverberate sort of timelessly in the Akasha. So they they've got to have some sort of enduring entities that words hook up to. Right. Universals. So there's various motivations. I, I, I don't know. Some of the motivations in the, in the Greek tradition for universals and forms seem to be the same. I don't really think there was much influence. Okay. Okay. Um, I, just, I, I just think it's a linguistic, mainly a linguistic, I don't know. It's not just linguistic because, gosh, I, I'm looking out and I'm seeing a tree and I know it's like that other tree. Right. Isn't there treehood? Right, right, right. There's a common characteristic there, right? So yeah. it's, not, it's not just linguistic. It, it's also perceptual. Right. No, I, I, told, I, I agree. I agree. Um, so what, what, why do we have to have Aristotle's uh, minions coming to India telling us about universals? I, I don't think so. I yeah. think it's a sort of naturally arising philosophical topic. I, look, I don't know. I'm not a great historian. Of the, of, I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of time worrying about India and Greece. Yeah, and, there's been quite a bit of work written on that. Yeah, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know. I find that boring. <laughs> you care more about the ideas than about where they came from necessarily. That's the. <laughs> well, I don't know. I guess I just have. I just sort of think. You know, human beings. It, it's our commonality as human beings. We're going to arrive at a lot right. of common philosophic conceptions. Right. So now, jumping onto your yoga book, which I I, I thought was actually really really interesting fascinating you you cover to be honest a whole gamut of different topics they're all connected but they're very deep and 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 interesting i mean to be honest the entire like what what made you want to write this and and is it connected to any sort of practice you were doing like yoga and 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 thinking well, I first about- got, before i became a you know professional uh, sanskritist and philosopher uh, I did go uh, to the Sri Aurobindo Ashram. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I even began learning a few asanas. I know, I mean, in the, in the ashram, the asanas were a very big part of it. Yeah. It more karma yoga than anything, but also a lot of meditation. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I never lost that. Uh, did you get into the asana practice? 
Excuse me? Did you get into like the asana practice that we yeah, do in the West? Yeah, I was really happy in the 90s to see the movement of asanas. I, I sort of thought, gosh, when I was a graduate, I sort of thought that maybe there would be inroads into uh, Western culture more from the top down, you know, from these great philosophic systems. Uh, right. Vedanta and the Upanishads and the Gita and Naya and so on. Uh, but then when it, you know, it's sort of from below, right, right. From the popular culture. And I, I thought that that's great because for one thing, uh, there were all these yoga teachers who wanted me to tell them how to pronounce the Sanskrit. <laughs> Asana, asana lessons and I really and, and I stopped I stopped correcting yoga teachers though because it's really obnoxious right so when they would say na- namaste that's really funny I made I made them say namaste instead of you know na- nama I know they say what do they say namaste so I, that was the one I yell at them but you know, I don't know. But there was some. But there was really this sort of new interest, and and I, you know, just to be honest, um, uh, teaching undergraduates at the University of Texas was you know big school, fifty thousand students. I don't know, thirty some thousand undergraduates. There's interest in yoga, and I was a way of sort of teaching a lot of things, you know, philosophy and history of Indian civilization. So I'd sort of all packed in. Right. That, that book came out of my teaching uh, a semester-long yoga, uh, philosophy of yoga class right. at the University of Texas at Austin. No, because like, like for example, in your first chapter, you, 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 you spend a lot of time going through yoga like as an asana practice, and, right. and you talk that's about just a lure. that's a lure people in. I'm sorry, there was a reviewer from Norway, something said, Hey, this is a really good book, but the first chapter is just terrible. St- it stinks, it's just some, some <laughs> <the> novelistic <laughs> <laughs> of a yoga class. Skip over that and read the rest of it. <laughs> But no, 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 it's a sort of to get the yoga teachers interested that I wasn't just... No, because it's funny because... I think there is a connection. No, I mean, it, those, yoga, those yoga asanas and so on, they, those yoga teachers, they may not know very much, but they were many, many of them are really sincere teachers. 100%. And, and, you know, they want more body awareness and, you know, they want to practice planning. Right. So, I, you know... There, there's some people, there's some academics that are specialists in yoga and tantric traditions. Right. I can name some names who really scoff at this popular yoga movement. Sure. Really phony and so on. But I don't know. I, 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 I tend to be a non-elitist. No, because, I mean, uh, like I know people that are hardcore into the yoga practice of, you know, Ashtanga yoga, whatever, the asana right. stuff. Right. right. And, and, and and there and there's scenes in there where you describe, like for example, a certain pose, and you're you open up the banda, and this uh, yeah, yeah. You know, they had this experience. That's how they would talk constantly. So I just I was like, oh, you must have been like a, a hardcore like asana practitioner because <laughs> you you kind of got all those like those beats exactly right. So I guess <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, those are very interesting. The bandas and. Um, 
And I tell you, at first, when I learned about Ashtanga yoga, which, you know, is really hard physical practice, right. you know, uh, uh, you know, a lot of jumping around and, you know. Yeah, Patabi Joyce, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I was, I said, gosh, this is terrible that they call it Ashtanga yoga because Ashtanga yoga is from the Yoga Sutra. Yeah, right. Yamas, Niyamas, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. <laughs> and, you know, come on. And the Yamas are Ahimsa. Right. right. Satya, I mean, ahimsa. This is the, all of ethics is an ahimsa just about, right? Right. In my view. I mean, it's, it's, but then, but then, I so how can you call it ashtanga? It's just this, you know, it's just this athletic practice, right? Jumping around. I mean, right. where, 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 where's the dadana, right? Where's all this other stuff? But then later, you know, after, you know, becoming a little more mature about it, I realized that all these Ashtanga yoga teachers, they became interested in sure. the yamas and the niyamas and so on. They weren't just interested in asana. It was really wonderful that they called it Ashtanga yoga because they wanted to know about the tradition of the mental discipline and the swadhyaya, the self-study and so on. And they became interested in the Yoga Sutra and so on and so forth and other, the Bhagavad Gita and other yogic texts. So I mean, this is, I think it's wonderful. No, no, and you're right because like, it's interesting because obviously Patabi Joyce was, he came from line Krishnamachari and then Krishnamachari right. had that sense of, of the, the yoga tradition via um, Bhagavad Gita, all that stuff, right? Because uh, you know, even BKS Iyengar is part of yeah, that. Yeah, Iyengar. He yeah, yeah. He, no, he read the Bhagavad Gita. And, uh, he's a, he wrote a commentary on the Yoga Sutras too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, the one it was it's interesting because you brought up a point in your conversation about samadhi, and it's actually because when I, I read the Yoga Sutras a couple decades ago, and, and I haven't really come back to it that much, but I was talking to my friend who is a, a, a practitioner of tantra. And I would, and he'd be like, I want to have Siddhis and I want to practice for Siddhis. And I'm like, and my response is no, that's a, that's a divergence away from Samadhi. But the way you have the conversation in there and, and over time, yeah, our, I think there's something wrong in the Yoga Sutra. But I, but I actually think like you're right in the sense where as I read more and more of other yogi traditions and even things like Mahabharata and they all talk about yoga, but in different senses that even the sense of, having these siddhis, like you very clearly enunciated, a samadhi is itself a sort of siddhi, um, yes, which, is, yes. which is really fascinating no, way to no. think about so, it. So, so it seems to me that what's happening, I think it's Yoga Sutra 337, where Patanjali says, you know, these are siddhis to the ordinary person, but they are obstacles to the final liberation or something like that. Not right. Here. It seems to me that there, unfortunately, he's thinking top down from the Sankhya metaphysics of the dualism of Purusha and Prakriti, right. as opposed to bottom up from the practices. And, you know, and I, you know, I'm sorry, I don't think Patanjali is infallible. I think he's a great yogi and so on, but I think that some of the ideas uh, are flawed it's you know he uses he uses the metaphysics that was available to him i don't think he was particularly well trained as a as a metaphysician uh, and so how is it that he has the whole third book of the yoga sutra and many other even a lot of the second book all about siddhis 
and the, and what 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 comes about from a practicing ahimsa, you know, the enmity, the, and you you get a kind of aura, right? Like Saint Francis to see where the birds sit on his shoulder, you know. I mean, I don't know. My wife's a little bit like that. I mean, animals, she has a certain vibe about her. She's such a, an ahimsaka that, you know, that, that, that uh, uh, animals are not frightened uh, uh, around her. So uh, can I? Can and I, and that, that seems to me a kind of city. And so, so the, the, the idea of sort of, you know, uh, uh, denigrating the cities, which is sort of the official metaphysical position, seems to me not to square with the, with the actual practices of yoga, where you're always developing these special talents of consciousness. So, so can I throw a wrench into the mix? Because uh, I was thinking about it, right? Coming from, obviously, this might be um, a, a chronologically probably incorrect position to take, but... Uh, I was thinking about it. I'm like, so we look at the, the yoga suttas and this particular uh, um, admonishment of going towards a siddhi path versus samadhi path. And then I was thinking, well, a lot of the mythological stories that were told have all these, these beings go down the path of getting some sort of siddhi vis-a-vis -vis yogic practice, right? right? And then when they go down that path of to get the siddhi, they get caught up in that particular siddhi and they lose the sense of, of the of the oneness and they go out and do something evil or terrible yeah, or whatever. Even, even Ravana. Even, yeah, even Ravana, Ravana, right? Yeah. So I, I was just thinking maybe that is more of what he's inferring. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So, so, no, I, yeah, that's good. That's a good that's a good correction to what I said. That's true. I like that. It could yeah, yeah, sure surely you uh I don't know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get a you get a, a particular, I don't know, city of uh, I don't know, uh, dazzling people with something or other, I don't know, bending right. metal, something. And, you know, you, you know, I don't know, you just spend your life uh, entertaining people that way. <laughs> right. No, it, it, because, and that's one of the, I mean, because I, I also think about it, like, because I don't think Patanjali necessarily has the concept of Jiva Samadhi in his system, right? It, 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 you have to, at some point, get rid of the body for that sense yeah. of... Um, well, yeah, it's sort of like... Um, I'm not so sure about that. He does say uh, that uh, clinging to life. Yeah. And there's such a dualism of Purusha and Prakriti. Right. Friendship that, yeah, you're, you're probably right. And, but it, and even on your book, the one of the things I actually really, truly enjoyed was your, your kind of elucidation and kind of development of the ideas of samskaras, vyasanas, the, uh, I mean, vasanas, rebirth. It was really awesome to see it in that format because it came out very easily people get really caught up in what these things mean and how they play out um and the way you described it actually in the book was very easy to understand and i thought was very illuminating for people that want to that want to delve into instead of the just the you know the the passing comment karma this uh, oh do this you get karma it's a lot lot more intricate and thought out of a system than people give it credit for and, or even try to think about it, right? Like, like one of the things that's, I, I always, especially, and I'll put it in the modern context, when we, we talk about things like transgender and things of that nature, I find it, the more I think about it in terms of samskara, the more I feel connected to these people to say, just be who you are. Because this is what your, your vasanas, your samskaras were connected to, right? It, it's, in some ways it can, 
and, and it can be negative for people that sometimes people treat other people like that's your fault, your issue, you handle it, as opposed to saying, this is your karma playing out, let's play it out together, let's support what, whatever's going, going on in the world. I don't know, that's just perspective. Yeah, I think I got that, um, I think I got that idea from uh, Sri Aurobindo, who, like some other Neo-Vedantans, I, I think this may be a, and, and tantrics yeah. in general, but also also in Buddhism at the Bodhisattva tradition. And the, this is this is my big wind up for the. And here's the 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 pitch is that rebirth is not a bad thing. Yeah. That uh, you know, uh, sort of the standard mainstream line in all the um, yoga influenced traditions is you want freedom from uh, reincarnation. Uh, but in the Bodhisattva uh, tradition of Buddhism, and I think it's in Aurobindo, it's in some Tantra, and it's kind of implicit in the Gita also, where in chapter six, we could talk about that. It's the idea that you are developing a, a unique personhood over a course of many lifetimes. You call it soul making. Yeah, soul making. Yeah, yeah. soul making. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know. I really like that idea. No, I, I think it's. I think it's a great idea because it, it's funny because growing up, my one of the things my father, you know, would teach me, and we belong to the Sri Vaishnava tradition, the Vishishtadvaita tradition, and he'd be like, once you have moksha, you could come in come in and out of the world as you please and engage in rebirth, but you're not connected to the world in the same way because you see it holistically as a body of God. And then rebirth no, cool. longer, no longer appears to be uh, suffering. It is playing in the field that, you know, of the, the dance, the vibrations of the universe. Yeah, 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 the, dan yeah, the divine dance. Or, right. But I mean, it, it, but even the, the idea of soul making, I find it to be, and this was actually, when I was younger, a stronger argument I would have against the concept of a God that's one and done versus yeah. a, a, right. a God that says, I care and love you so much. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to yeah, give yeah, you yeah, all yeah. the chances. Yeah, yeah. Vishnu, Vishnu is right there. I mean, and all the goddesses, right, to help yeah. you along in your development. It's not just to get out of it, which yeah. doesn't quite make sense, right? I mean, well, why go through the whole thing if it's just to escape? Right, right. And, and so much of the of the bhakti literature ends up being people saying, "I don't even want moksha. I just want yeah, to be yeah, born yeah. again and again." Yeah, to... yeah. Even Vivekananda says, "Yeah, yeah." He's in the Shankara tradition. Right. He says, "I don't want. I don't want uh, uh, mukti. I want to be reborn so I can worship uh, the Lord in all the various forms." Right. But it, it, but I but I thought like the way you laid it out, the entire soul making idea was really amazingly well done especially because you connect it to each of your the yogic sense the karmic sense the the rebirth sense all that is well it, i'll tell you i get that mainly from uh, sri Aurobindo because you know it is in the western tradition but in the in the west you know kind of like purgatory or i don't know whether uh, uh the uh um, the catholics have the purgatory yeah 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 they, they kind of have it they kind of, but but they have it, it What's so, what's so much better about the Indian tradition is it's here, earth, right. humans. It's not in some other 
it's not some somewhere else, some heaven, some that's disconnected. That's so right. the earth is. I think this has ecological significance, right? No, because, absolutely. Because you know, um, I, I think uh, Christians can say, uh, you know, the hell with the earth, right? I mean, you know, we're going to go off somewhere else anyway. Right. It's just some you know testing ground. Whereas in in a philosophy of rebirth. You you know you're 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 interested in this world being a getting better because you're you're going to come back right yeah, right you're come back so right. this is where I saw it. it was even a little bit like Rawls's uh, thought experiment about the foundations of justice right which is society right where, where you know hey um, you want the law set up where you don't know your place in society. the veil of ignorance yeah, yeah the veil of ignorance. And that's like a rebirth. You don't know right. where you're going to be reborn. Right. You're, you're going to be reborn as a human to be continue your some scars and so on, most likely. Unless you're really an awful person like Hitler or something, then I think you're born as a you know, feral pig or something that people hunt <laughs> down. But, but, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so yeah, I really, I, I really like that aspect of the theodicy yeah, and, and the thing that I'm getting, uh, I got from your book, and, and to be honest, I think more and more writers nowadays are, are having this position, because before people, their position was the Vedantic philosophy, Hinduism, Buddhism, are world denying, they all care about moksha, but the reality is like when you get into the heart of these, these texts and these stories and these this traditions, they're world affirming. Buddhism yes. too, very Absolutely. world affirming, right? The whole concept of the, the, the reason you want to get out has nothing to do with because the world is bad, is because your mental state in connection to the world is bad, right? It's, it's, a, it's the freeing well, up. As good as it could be. Yeah, as, uh, it could, exactly, it could be better. These things right. can be better once you have the right perspective, right. right? I mean, this is why the, you know, in Gita, Krishna's whole point is not to break the world, it's Samadarshana. See all right. beings as one, right? And yeah, loka sangraha, and, and you know you got to act and all that. And the Buddhist concept is very similar about kādarya, yeah, right? It comes back again and again, right? Uh, with these perfect qualities that are uh, just you know built for helping people, right? Right, and I, I think it's I, I'm I'm really enjoying the the movement now towards looking again at these these traditions and texts as being. How do we world affirm? Because these texts yeah, are really about. You know who's really, I think, maybe central in this is Abhinavagupta. Oh. Because I tell you what is, maybe this is um, too much influenced by process philosophy. Of Whitehead? Of, of Whitehead. But the idea of the world tree, right? Tree. Yeah. Uh, beauty. That... Um, that uh, you know, the, it's a process of creating beauty, right? And a, a process of our being able to appreciate beauty, which I don't know ties in. I don't know the. There's a neo Vedantin named. Uh, uh, he was at Madras uh, University of Madras. Uh, uh, gosh, I'm sorry. Maybe it's slipping my mind right now. Um, who has a real good essay about beauty in Advaita? Anand the Korsami? Uh, no, not yeah. He's great too, but no, I'm I'm thinking of um, somebody else. Um, uh, he was um, yeah. Uh, 
a real, um, it starts with an M. Uh, I'm sorry. That's okay. fine. That's fine. Um, in, in any case, um, the, the idea is that uh, the uh, sort of raison d'etre of the world right. is is Shri, is the ongoing uh, cre expression or creation of beauty and the appreciation of beauty. Yeah, and that's and that and that's also Lakshmi Tantra, right? That comes out yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in Lakshmi Tantra very strongly. How the the the, the prakriti, the nature, the driving force of all creation is Lakshmi or Sri. Yeah. And, and this is why I, was, I tend to love Vishishtadvaita in the way I interpret it. It's not necessarily yeah. the way I think most people do. Is if all this is truly the body of God in the Shesha Sheshi Bhava, then all this is amazing. It's perfect. It yeah, is. That's right. it, it is a process, right? There's a. This is all God yeah. experiencing, expressing Himself or herself, her him and herself in the sense, in infinite ways. So how right. can it not be good? How can it not yeah. be great? Yeah, it, it's just you know, hey, it's awesome. Yeah. Have fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, don't hurt anybody. <laughs> that's, that's right. It, 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 now, I, I don't know, have you, since you spend a lot of time with Ahimsa, did you ever look at the concept in the Mahabharata of Anir Shamshaya? And did you ever think about the, because I mean, Alf, uh, I forget how to say his last name, Hiddle Biddle. Uh, uh, I don't, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I always mess up the last name. Yeah, um, yeah. But he talks about the, those two in, in conjunction with each other. So I've always found it fascinating. Oh, I see. I read a book of his a long time ago. He's pretty good. He writes very well. Alf Hittelbeidel. Hittelbeidel, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Okay. Yeah. And what, what's the idea again? Uh, the, the difference between Anir Shamshaya in the Mahabharata, which is non-cruelty, uh, uh, juxtaposed with Ahimsa, which is non-violence. Like, uh, one of his arguments is that Mahabharata, even though it talks about non-violence, it's really more about non-cruelty, about how not to be cruel in the world and how even though well, violence I don't, I don't know the whole of the Mahabharata that well okay but just the Bhagavad Gita where I know Krishna does talk about him does say ahimsa and you sort of say ah here it is in a war how can you practice ahimsa right. and, well, and go uh, out and fight but it's sort of like ahimsa on your but you know to me the real in India the real contrast is between a kind of you know you go back and look at the jaina text on ahimsa right it's more like don't hurt anybody don't do anything that's going to cause other people harm right and um but it's not to sort of active help people that's that right. you find in some buddhist stuff where compassion lead you to this more activist um, idea of going out and helping people. Right. I don't think, I think Ahimsa in the Yoga Sutra and yoga traditions is um, not, it, it's more uh, Jainism. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more sort of it's, it's kind of a libertarian side, you know, right. sort of let people be, you know, you don't have to go out of your way to help them. 
but you surely shouldn't hurt them. Right. And, and so, so they have their own processes. Whereas, I don't know, the Buddhist, you know, in, in a way, it seems to me that that ethic of, you know, let people follow their own way, their own dharma, yeah. is maybe more in, in, in Hindu traditions, whereas the Buddhist, you know, they wanted to convert people. Like yeah. they, they, they sort of, they, we got the truth. We, we want to, and I don't know, I don't know if that's so good. I mean, I have a, I have a couple of friends who really dislike Buddhism, and particularly in their understanding of the classical context, because right. they're like, they're like the Muslims and the Christians. They, they don't leave people alone. They want to make everybody a Buddhist and so on, right? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I guess here we're getting a him sign to politics, but. Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, for me, like, I, I think those demarcations you're making are correct. Like the, the Jains are, like, it's not abstain. It's an abstention. It's not, ahimsa is not like an active, uh, like activism, like you're saying, and Buddhists do that. But, but it's like altruistic. Yeah, yeah. But in the Gita sense with Loka Samgraha and Yoga Kshema, both those ideas. Yeah, that's a little more, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's requiring more of you, right? Yeah, for, save for the, yeah. yeah. It, it's, just, it's, it's a little different. That's in the Vaishnava traditions, isn't it? Uh, I think yeah. Maybe the, the Shiva, Shaivite traditions are a little less community oriented. Well, I mean, I don't know. Because, I mean, if you look at the. The, the Shaivite traditions, in the, especially in the Tamil side too, uh -huh. with the, with the what, what are they called, uh, Niners, uh -huh. uh, they're, they're, they're very, they're very yeah. socially conscious and it, it's very concerned with, with uh, social upliftment. And it, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, I think there's, there's a philosophical side of things and then it's like how people think about the philosophy and apply it in the real world. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of the like Madhvacharya uh, uh, descendants, like the, the, the Purandasa, uh, uh, Vyasatirtha, all these other people that were very mm -hmm. hardcore socially conscious, always mm -hmm. caring about people that are downtrodden and, and trying mm -hmm. to uplift them. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, 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 there's like... Yeah, yeah the history is really complex. Yeah, but, but, but I think more than anything else, these issues are not Hindu, Muslim, whatever. Yeah. They're human issues, right? Mm -hmm. At some point, you look at... Yeah, right. You look at suffering and you just can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't sit by, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's this uh, uh, Buddhist, uh, is it Shantideva? Yeah, I think it is, where he says, guys, there's some great lines where he says, why do we want to eliminate suffering just because it's suffering? We're, yeah. wherever, it, wherever suffering occurs, it's, it's suffering. Gosh, right. I mean, it doesn't matter whose suffering it is. He says, you know, we Buddhists believe that suffering doesn't belong to anyone. The, you know, the individual person is really a kind of convenient, the idea is a convenient fiction. There is no enduring person. Nevertheless, suffering is bad. But, but, but in some sense... Get rid of it. But in some, sense, in some sense, too, like your idea of soul making requires suffering, right? Yeah, to, to, to yeah, so, yeah, so, so, yeah, suffering, at least in pain, is looked upon as a kind of instrumental good. So yeah. to be able to overcome it, it gives us something to overcome and, and uh, it sparks us to uh, develop. Which, which makes a lot more sense within the rebirth scenario, right? right. As of having lifetimes after lifetimes to 
refine yourself in the heat of the, the fire, you know, mm -hmm. to be the, 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 the perfect steel or the wonderful glass or whatever it is you want to be. But it's, it's that, that, that engagement with the, the, the suffering of cause. No, just, just simply pain. I mean, you, yeah. you, know, you have to learn, right? I mean, there got to be standards. <laughs> Right? Right, but, but you, can't, you can't, you don't want to burn tissue. You don't want to stick your hand in the fire. But, right? but, it's but a good I was, thing that we feel pain. It's a good thing, but it's also like the way I say it, sometimes relationships are built stronger through going through ah, something together, right? Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. And, and the relationship, maybe in, in the sense with God, if you go through the relationship with God through the suffering together, it reaffirms that bond or it can break it, right? And, and that's really. Uh, what what the issue of I think people tend to have constantly. Yes, and uh, but what's one so wonderful about a philosophy of rebirth is, uh, you know, uh, it's never absolutely broken. You're always yeah. going to have a chance. <laughs> Krishna says that too, right? I think you he know, says that. Going on. I mean, you know, you die, you die. He dharmas you glut, you know, and so on. I mean. No, but he says he, he says you're never you're never lost. Yeah, what he's I forget what he says. In, it's a chapter two or three where he tells Arjuna basically uh, whatever is gained in spiritual yeah. practice, you never lose. Yeah. yeah, and this alpam uh, asya dharmasya maha. Let's see, it's something like says maha bhayat. It says from the great fear. Just yeah. a little bit of this teaching. Yeah, yeah. It saves from the great fear. That is, everything can contribute to your soul. Growth. Yeah, exactly, which is, which is a beautiful concept, right? Like every, I, it, I mean, the pain, the, the pleasure, it, it's so yeah. life-affirming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the Kalarnava Tantra has that. There's a, a line, I, I have it somewhere in that book, where uh, on the path of, you know, everyone is on the, uh, the, on the path of Shiva, every everyone belongs to the great family, the Kula. Yeah. And on this path, which is not an easy path, it's like trying to hold the tail of a tiger or carry a <laughs> like, It's a very hard path, but e even a fall is art. Yeah. Even a fall is art. It's yeah. material or material for art. Yeah. So there, there's ultimately no way to get off the path. <laughs> it's 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 great um and, and just another side note um which i really thought think is interesting on the philosophy side of the whole is the the, the demarcation of the mind from the spirit is i think so vitally different you talk about the the cartesian uh you know dichotomy versus the yogic dichotomy and i think that is such a unique way to view modern, you know, you could talk about consciousness and consciousness studies in that way. We don't have to link the mind. We don't have to link it to the mind the way Western. Yeah. And I, I think that can, that offers yes, a break, yes. like yes. a really good break in understanding what are we talking, no, really, talking about? Consciousness. Yeah, really need to, a kind of at least a tripleism, something like consciousness, mentality, and, and. Right. The physicality. Physicality, right? Yeah, because, I mean, in, in the yogic system and Sankhya system, it's the mind is a physical thing. Side. Yeah. But it's not physical, like, touchable and stuff. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's something. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think That's these chitta. concepts. I love the concept of chitta. The yoga yeah. Because it, it's, 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 
it's it's part of procreity it's part of nature but it's it's got intentionality right and right that, like it's not it's, just any old kind of nature yeah the chitta is amazing right just uh, just the concept of mine I, th I think is i find it be so fascinating when you compare it from at least the eastern or hindu jain buddhist thought to the western thought of what mind is it's right. so so, so much, much more dynamic yeah right yeah I agree. so see then see again this is um you know um you know maybe the sankhya system is not the richest uh philosophy of of india uh and but it should i mean it's sort of but it's like the base of most it's, much okay. it's got such basic notions that come on any philosopher west east north south they should know this stuff i mean right. this again my my big axe to grind it sort of takes us full circle is you know at least as a professional academic and is is this should these traditions should be part of the graduate curriculum in philosophy well i mean i think you might have made this point before but i've definitely read it somewhere else too is even the term when you have a philosophy department it's automatically always philosophy of the western world right it's just right. a greek philosophy and then if you want classes you go to an indian philosophy department which usually might be part of religious studies or something else yeah um, yeah, yeah that's where it usually is but i think that should be broken down and i i, I, I really thank uh, my colleagues at the university of texas that they appointed me in a philosophy department and right. you know and there are a few places now that are doing that like you know janard ganeri was just given a philosophy position at uh, toronto right and, yeah and you know, in Oxford with um, with with Mati Law, and you know, right. after that, and so it's gradually happening. Uh, but but even in India, uh, there's there needs to be more integration. Yeah, India is is it's such a weird thing to me because even when we're talking about you know Ramanuja Tattacharya and the other panditas that you learned from Acharyas, it's they should they should be equivalent of phds in these subjects yeah. sitting in a university and they weren't paid that but they're not paid like phds oh, but not only the paid many people don't even cite them when they no 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 that's right they don't pay attention to them and, and that's sad there's, there's sad. so much information and knowledge that these people have and i mean right. to be honest they're walking encyclopedias of that's right that guy i'm telling you Ramana Jatadacharya and some of the traditional pundits, gosh, unbelievably studious. Yeah. I mean, have worked so hard and brilliant. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Also, I love Sanskrit. I mean, Sanskrit is yeah. a great language. No, I, I love Sanskrit. I love the Indian tradition. I also love, like, I love medieval European philosophy. I love continental philosophy. Spinoza is my man. Like yeah. when it comes to continental philosophy, I just, I, I really enjoy his work. <laughs> I mean, I don't agree with everything, but I really enjoy what he brings to that table. Um, it, but I, I, I did my master's in continental philosophy. Oh, really? But I didn't finish it. Uh, to be, uh, I have a couple of vices, which includes drinking. <laughs> so I think that prevented me when I was in law school from finishing that. But I really. So you're a recovering, you're a recovering lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, and I, I loved like I, I one of my papers I did in my grad program was 
comparison between Shankara and uh, Martin Heidegger. I thought, oh, Heidegger, really? yeah, being in time and the concept of Logos and how that plays with Brahman concept was very interesting to me in the play between those two. Yeah, I, I don't really know much about that. I mean, I, I you know, it's like so, there was so much to yell and scream about in classical India and being a Sanskritist that I'm, yeah. a, I'm a little, uh, you know, with, you know, and, and I, at Harvard and, and, and Texas, strong analytic department, I'm, I'm really a little short on continental yeah. I, I mean, for me, if, if, if these things are universally true, they must exist in all cultures and all yeah, different thought I, processes. I really, yeah, I know. I must say I really love some of the existentialist. I, I know the, the novels of Camus. Yeah. Some of Sartre's stuff. Uh, yeah, it's really, really, really great. Sort of it's, you know. Um, right. So I've taken up a lot of your. Yeah. And by the way, th those existentialists, they are, they do value, you know, consciousness. They're not, you know, like. What is, what is absurd are atoms in science, you know, Camus says, I look at my hand, it's supposed to be made of atoms. I have, I can no way relate to my hand being made out of atoms. Right. It's just totally absurd to me. I have to make choices on the basis of, you know, the way things right. appear. You know, appearances, from the, in the phenomenal world, appearances are reality. And so, yeah. you know, to hell with science. I mean, and so, in a way, that really, with the emphasis on experience and you know, the lived life, they're I mean, kind of coming together with the Indian traditions. Well, I mean, it came together with Schopenhauer and then the existentialist phenomenalists kind of have a line from Schopenhauer to them, right? Oh, it's a, man, so yeah. Schopenhauer brought in the Vedantic with this idea of yeah, mind and all that stuff. And, but maybe not in the greatest ways. So. No, no, no. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it's just, there's that connection where it's a simple, yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of, but I've taken up so much of your time, Professor. I, you know, I really appreciate <laughs> well, it. Well, Is well, there... Anything else that you think that you want to talk about or bring up? Oh, you know, hey, that's what I do to talk. So I appreciate it. It was, it was wonderful to read your books and nice have a conversation you. with you. Okay. Um, but I am, uh, I will get that other book that you put out, The Rutledge, uh, uh, the one epistemology of. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. And, 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 uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. My, and yeah, my three volumes. Right. Um, so, are you working? Uh, so, you're working on anything else right now? Yeah, well, I just that what I sent you on. I'm I'm actually uh, working on. Uh, I'm reading Shankara's uh, commentaries uh, on the Upanishads, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm I think what I'm going to do is read every commentary in Sanskrit that I can get my hands on on the Isha Upanishad, and just right. on. I, like I say, I'm tempted to do Sri Arsha, but. Trish is actually really hard. I mean, <laughs> he, he's such a good poet. Most philosophers, like Gangesha, he has some long, complicated thoughts and long, complicated sentences, but his vocabulary is not all that rich. I didn't have to look up a lot of words in dictionaries and so on. Right. Whereas Sri Harsh is a poet. And even in, in Kanda Nakanda Kadya, he's always playing with you. And he has these, you know, shades of meaning and he has a lot of, you know, Sanskrit's got a really rich, and so you, you have to spend a lot of time in the dictionary. <laughs> and, uh, and whereas Shankara is, as a prose stylist, right. is absolutely clear. There, there's, uh, I mean, he's like a model of lucidity. Right. 
and and so it's pretty pretty easy to read and i don't know i also love the show punishment so i so i've decided to work on on that and and not shri harsha uh but i don't know maybe maybe uh i'll change my mind but it's really nice even though gosh i've made a living talking i haven't talk now for a few months to anyone now except you <laughs> <laughs> uh, and i must say it's kind of nice not to have to get up and lecture every day like i used to I'm, right right i'm retired and so i have a lot more time so as, aside from the sanskrit text and, and reading what else are you going to do with your uh, retirement time oh i i don't know working the lawn you know uh i uh <laughs> this is i know it sounds like terrible indulgence but uh when we remodeled this uh old adobe house in new mexico i got a, a special on a sauna <laughs> uh, so i know this uh, you know this bikram yoga is not is is sort of uh been criticized as maybe not the healthiest way but i really like getting very hot and then doing asanas so yeah. you get, you get because they're easier right <laughs> right 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 <laughs> when you're when you're already, when you when you go into a sauna and you get really hot it's easier to stretch and right. so, so i i i'm enjoying that well good luck with that and thank you so much for your time and and your patience but uh i will i will definitely keep in touch and thank you for everything i appreciate okay. it Alright. Yeah,